So I'm there and I'm like, put my hand in the crack. Okay, got a good hold, foot's in the crack. One bit of gear goes in. There's about three foot either side of this bit of gear. Like, it's like nothing. Hot Nothing's dog down going, the yeah, Hot dog down the hallway. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say that and then steal away from that. I'm glad you brought that up. It was very much yeah. like it. Though. Yeah. And what do you mean by that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Never had it. Um, <laughs> oh, God. Hey guys, and welcome to the Take Flight podcast with me, Mark Whittle. Take Flight is a peak performance movement on a mission to find what makes peak performers tick and understand what it is, whether a single thing or a multitude of things, that really unlocks the best in all of us. I was so excited for this episode, the first people to come back on the podcast for a second chat and two people that I'm a big admirer of. So for those of you listening, have you ever thought about rowing across the Atlantic? Have you ever thought about climbing Mont Blanc or motorbiking from London to the Sahara? What about completing an ultra triathlon across the extreme terrain of Patagonia? Maybe you have, but how many of us have actually gone and done these things? How many of us have acted on it? And throw in the minor detail of having never rode before, never climbed before, never done a normal triathlon, and only had a motorbike license for a week. Well, the guests for this episode have done all of these things, and now they're back to talk about their most recent challenge that they've smashed. The guests for episode 58 of the Take Flight podcast are none other than James Whittle and Tommy Caulfield aka the tempest 2 to hear all about their previous achievements which you should do because they are incredible you should listen to episode two of this podcast but these are two fantastic examples of people who are in alignment with who they really are have built a lifestyle that inspires so many and allows them to truly find their own limits and push past them time and time again nearly two years ago the lads did me the honor of jumping on episode two before the podcast had gone live before Take Flight was even a thing and had any listeners, or there was any real reason for them to help me out other than them just being legends. And I'll be forever indebted to the boys and Hugh Thomas, Rob Madden, Ali Gordon, Duncan Taylor and Ben Sorgana for doing that. But on that episode, nearly two years ago, they announced their challenge would be climbing the most difficult and most famous track climb in the world, El Capitan in Yosemite Valley, California. I went over to watch the boys finish the climb and I know this is a video podcast, but I can't put into words the pride I felt watching them finish. 72 hours of climbing, nights spent sleeping on a vertical rock face, and some of the most incredible stories I've heard. I can't wait for you to hear them. We talk all about overcoming fear, managing nervousness and performance anxiety. We hear all about hanging 2,000 metres above Yosemite Valley, taking it in turn to use the LCAT facilities in the morning after sleeping on the same ledge as the free solo climber Annex Holland and the dorm wall climber, Tommy Caldwell. This was such an amazing chat. I loved hearing all the details from the boys. It's the whole reason that I went to LA in the first place last week, and I'm so glad I did. With that said, please enjoy episode 58 of the Take Flight podcast with the heroes, my real-life brother, James Whittle, and my brother from another, Tom Caulfield. Congrats, boys, you absolute legends. James, Tom, welcome back. Thanks for having us. We are back. With a vengeance. And alive, luckily. Just. Yeah, thank God. I can only apologise for what's just happened in the last hour and a half. What's happened? We went for lunch and I double booked. You did double book. It was uh, an interesting lunch. <laughs> who Good did you, though. Who did you double book with? <laughs> My accountant, Ram. <laughs> joined us for lunch. <laughs> did. Which he had no idea about either. So the only person that knew of this four-way meeting was you. Well, it was a shock to me as well. I, oh, right. I, I intended to cancel it yesterday. Right. Ah. But the uh, the joys of the side hustle. 
<laughs> Kicking on. <We> appreciate it. <laughs> was that was that when he sent you the email to uh, do the forms? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, we won't discuss you hiding all your money in the Caymans, but uh, <laughs> it was good to good, good, good to get an insight into your financial uh, taking flight yeah. straight to the Caymans to withdraw. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, taking flight to an offshore <laughs> shell company. Okay, that is peak performance practices. There we go. Um, Boys, so good to see you both safe and sound on the ground. And um, look what, how far we've come. What was it? Nearly two years since we sat in my kitchen and recorded episode two of Take Flight. Was it two years ago? Yeah, well, it was two years ago in January. And how many episodes? Wow. This will be episode 60, I think, nearly. God, I must listen to one. <laughs> <laughs> Other than the one I was watching. I've just got that on repeat. It's like, God, I sound good. <laughs> heavily, heavily edited. Yeah. <laughs> what a trip that was. I'm eh? joking. I listen to it weekly. Yeah, but honestly, I've been buzzing for this. I've been really looking forward to it. The first one was hilarious, sitting down and having a chat. And it was nice because um, obviously I knew both of you, knew a lot about the challenges. I'd been in Barbados for the row. Uh, which you boys spoke about in depth on the podcast on episode two, if no one's listened to that. And um, excited to hear this. You actually announced the climb at the end of that episode. We did, didn't we? Oh, yeah. Exclusive. Which was, I mean, it seems funny now looking back how little we knew when we announced that we were going to uh, so naive. climb El Capitan. Um, only now do we realise how stupid that was. <laughs> but yeah, it was. Yeah, that must have been the first time we probably committed out loud in general really it was yeah. always a thought and then yeah that was the first time we knew that other people were gonna hear that we of our plans but it seems to be your kind of identity with take the tempest too yeah yeah tell people and then figure out how to do it yeah <laughs> and if you don't do it you're like an idiot yeah <laughs> maybe i'll down for one yeah. day <laughs> no. must stop telling people stuff <laughs> scope it out first yeah the, ne the next adventure we'll uh yeah we'll maybe think about a little bit more before yeah. shouting from the rooftops <laughs> <laughs> no I love the approach I think it's brilliant and it inspires people to perhaps not do the same thing that you're doing but yeah, at don't least, do it yeah. <laughs> yeah. don't do it <laughs> it's it terrible people not to do it <laughs> but it inspires people to do what their mountain is right or totally. at least start thinking a little bit more seriously about it so just to summarise exactly what it is that you're doing um, it would be great to hear about the challenge sort of top line before we dive into some more details yeah so um, we've just returned from climbing El Capitan in Yosemite National Park. It's a 3,000 foot granite rock, granite rock face um, that is in California. It's 31 pitches um, from bottom to the top. And what's a pitch, just so people can visualize? So a pitch is, originally it was a length of rope. So basically how far you could climb before having to stop at the length of rope before bringing the next person up. Uh, and it's 31 of those, which is a lot. Obviously, the traditional length of a pitch is one, a single pitch route. And that's still 30 metres, so at least, so 100 foot plus. Uh, and that's still high enough to be in serious trouble if something goes wrong. So this is 31 of those stacked on top of each other. And it was going to take multiple days. So we were figuring out ways that we could live on the wall for three days as well. Um, yeah, and it was, well, like we said, announced nearly a couple of years ago, 18 months ago. And then we went through the process of learning how to climb and, and what we were doing. It's probably actually worth saying where the idea came from initially, um, which is yeah pretty random anyway. Yeah, so it's actually when we were 
on the Atlantic Row, which we spoke about in the last episode. We were stuck in that hurricane. And that's when we decided we we're going to take the Tempest 2 full time. And um, that's when like the worst business plan ever written was written. <laughs> but the one of the moments in those kind of two, three days on uh, the boat when we were stuck in that storm was we were like, right, we're going to take the Tempest 2 full time. What's going to be our next challenge? And we had classics of the Everest or this or that or South Pole, North Pole. And the background on my MacBook that we had at sea, I think the operating system was El Capitan or Yosemite or one of whichever one. And the background was El Cap. And James actually jokingly was like, oh, imagine climbing that. And we just laughed it off. It wasn't a serious comment. It was unobtainable, untouchable, kind of way outside of our realms of imagination. And then three years later, we find ourselves on the top of El Cap, which I think is... It's actually a really nice manifestation of how our mindset has grown from something that was only three years ago was deemed impossible um, to now having achieved it. Uh, I think is a pretty good barometer of where we've where we've kind of come from and where we are now. Um, and yeah, well, I think we had every reason to laugh at it because it was uh, it's definitely the biggest challenge we've ever taken on. Yeah, like congrats, boys! It's fucking amazing. Thanks, thanks, thanks man. It was incredible being there as well and watching you guys finish. It was actually fucking terrifying watching. Yeah. And we would have stood at the I bottom. Imagine. We could see the little uh, head torches on the wall flashing up and down. Like, it was mad watching. And seeing all the other people below you as well really put in perspective, like, fuck, they are so high up. It's uh, yeah, it's such a crazy place. And then obviously going through it, we, we spent a month in the valley, uh, three and a bit weeks in the valley before our attempt on El Capitan, and that was to learn uh, the final bits and pieces, or so, so we thought, and eventually ended up being essentially learning it all. Uh, and we spent time during that month sat in the meadow looking up at El Cap, kind of daunted by the whole thing, but trying to plan the route and just getting it, getting to grips with being there and it becoming a bit more normal. And even that didn't prepare us until you actually get on the rock and you're the one on the rock looking back at the meadow. It's absolutely crazy. And to see how the meadow changes from a thousand feet to our first night on the ledge, 1500 feet to uh, the pitch before the end called the wild stance. And it's, uh, it's surreal looking back down. Um, so yeah, totally know how you're feeling looking <laughs> at the meadow, staring up at the headlamps, just thinking, you know, what are those guys doing? And, it was, and it was weird being those headlamps. Though, totally, it? Yeah. I remember having a moment just before we topped out, um, it's kind of hanging in space, 3000 feet up, uh, like 50 feet away from the wall ascending this rope and I remember looking down at the valley Is that knowing, the last pitch? Yeah Just spinning around Yeah, just spinning around <laughs> knowing that you guys were down there and we spent the last month watching those headlamps top out being like what must that be like and I was just dangling there on my own and just kind of just smiled and it was like we are we are those headlamps now mm. which had seemed so kind of un, untouchable we just couldn't relate to it we had no idea what it would be like and it was finally like right I'm 100 yards from getting to the top of El Cap and I am that headlamp and yeah. it was quite a cool moment actually yeah. um, the, the only cool thing about finishing in the dark that was yeah. it apart from that <laughs> yeah, it sucked we were there normally <laughs> like it's getting dark so I've seen the headlamps so like better get back to bed there yeah. <laughs> and then on the actual climb we were there climbing until the early hours of the morning because you just do what you got to do it's totally different being there but yeah, no, thanks for coming out. It was uh, wicked to have you there at the end, actually. It's class. No, I enjoyed it. I wouldn't have missed it for the world. It was nice. I got to spend some time in Santa Monica as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. The so, real yeah, reason. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Ooh, lovely little brunch spot. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was good as well. Like, it, Well, I say good, but it was obviously hugely inspiring to watch you finish, but it's difficult sometimes 
just seeing people that you don't know and then seeing obviously you guys actually be the people at the top and we'll never know but it's I think it might be equally if not more terrifying for the people watching because at least you've got the control of how you're behaving and how you're acting up there and we're just down there hoping everything goes okay and and I think as well we'll probably talk more about this later but the the thing I was probably most worried about was you guys finishing and then the rappel down yeah in the dark yeah that is where a lot of the accidents happen it's I mean, we've actually been told a couple of times that the rappel isn't easy and the descent isn't easy, but only until you actually do it, it's really savage. It's a good two-hour hike, scrambling down really polished rocks that I guess the benefit of doing that in the dark is we couldn't see the edge, but you're essentially Mm. walking down the side of El Cap with the edge always on your right-hand side, and the rocks are polished, greasy, um... And yeah, a lot of accidents happen there. And then obviously by the time you get to the rappels, you're absolutely knackered from the hike, but also from we'd been climbing for like 14 hours on that final day. And we were absolutely gone. So we just we knew that we needed to just concentrate for another four rappels mm. and then make our way down. But yeah, it was tough. You went down a couple of times, oh, didn't you? I ate shit on numerous occasions. <laughs> on the rappel? Uh, on the walk down. The, oh, really? the hike down was like brutal. Yeah. Really brutal. And it's like this slick, polished um, kind of granite. And it's got this loose, almost like dusty snow on top. And at night, that kind of freezes. So you're, you're, you're walking and your feet will just go. And there's been numerous occasions people have just gone and they've just slid off the top of El Cap. And you think you're, you're obviously falling 3,000 feet. And uh, you got big backpacks, ropes on and stuff that are throwing you off balance. Yeah, yeah. it was brutal, actually. Yeah. Really brutal. Jesus, yeah. I mean, <clears throat> that's why we're worried about it. So, obviously, the climb itself was unreal, and I can't wait to get into some of the details about that. The rappel was dangerous in itself, as you were just talking about. But I find it fascinating the lengths you're prepared to go to to just achieve something like that anyway, because that's the tip of the iceberg. You put in a year and a half of climbing. You put in a month living in the valley beforehand in a van. So what sort of stuff... A First question, what did you do? What was the like life like living in the van and being in the valley? Um, and other question is, training-wise, for the year and a half beforehand, you mentioned that you learned most of the stuff while you are in the valley. Did it negate the stuff that you'd done before or did it just allow you to open your mind up to the kind of seriousness of the challenge ahead? I think, um, so going for the year and a half before, I'll, I'll talk about that a bit, that... We did quite a lot of climbing. We trained a lot. We worked with Westway, a club in uh, West London, and we spent a huge amount of time in there lead climbing. I mean, we were totally new to it in the first place. So there's bouldering, which is no higher than like three or four metres off the ground onto mats. Then there's top rope climbing, which is where you start to get higher, but you're always attached to a rope and always pretty much under tension. So it feels quite safe if you drop, but you're still loading the rope. And then there's lead climbing, which is where you take the rope up with you and clip to protection as you go. Um, and So that was all new to us anyway, doing the lead climbing. I remember when we did that course, uh, falling was always scary, whether it was indoors, which looking back now seems laughable. Um, and we were practicing lead climbing a lot and getting, you know, making good progress and getting much better. Um, but what was so, so hard to account for was going from lead climbing indoors to a thing called trad climbing, which is what climbing El Cap is and, and what most outdoor climbing is, where you 
on your harness, you take a full rack of all the protection and you have to protect yourself. So instead of clipping the rope to bolted carabiners and quick draws, you have to climb up, find somewhere in the rock to place your own protection and then clip your rope to that. And then if you fall, it's your own thing that you've stuck in the rock that has to catch you. So there's a skill in that by itself, uh, which obviously comes with a, a, a total another level of fear, uh, but also a totally different level of fitness because now you're not just making upward progress all the time. You have to get yourself in a position where you can stop, put this protection in, clip to it perfectly, and then carry on. That brought a whole other layer, which we weren't really prepared for. And then, uh, and I guess we'd done a little bit of that, but then going out into the valley and all of a sudden that tr trad climbing just gets amplified on LCAP 31 times over, um, even even three times over when you get to 300, 400, 500 feet. It's, um, it's really hard to articulate how that makes you act and behave. The, I think we've, we've said a couple of times, our climbing standard when we're trad climbing or on LCAP or on big rocks is maybe 20% of when we're indoors. It just essentially cripples your ability to climb the way that you know you can. And I think that's just natural. It's it's really, really bizarre. So that is why I said that we learned most of it in that month beforehand. Even though we had a good level of fitness, good technical know-how of the climbing, and we could follow coloured holds up in a climbing gym uh, until the cows come home. But getting out there, finding the route, placing your own gear and stuff was a... Is it like two different sports? 100%. Yeah, yeah it's, um, it is a totally different sport. I think probably 70% 70, 70 of our prep was probably the wrong prep. Would you change it then? Yeah, 100%. Okay. Um, and I think what you've got to take into account was when we told climbers about our plan for LCAP, it, it was often met with uh, not kind of negativity, but people generally being like, okay, like that's seriously ambitious. You need to be really, really careful. And they'd be like, how, how long have you been trad climbing? It's like, oh, we've never been trad climbing. And they're like, right, okay. So yeah, but we can climb this in, in the gym. And they're like, right, okay. That, that means nothing. Um, and it's literally like going on one of those indoor surf machines, standing up and then being like, I can big wave surf. <laughs> That's literally like the comparison. And nice. I think as James yeah, that said- that's a great comparison actually. As James said, when you go outside, it becomes less about your physical ability and far more about your mental ability. Because, and this is what we've in the last year become fascinated by is- Obviously, what these guys and girls are doing is physically unbelievable, but what they're dealing with upstairs is is genuinely mind-boggling. The level of kind of fear and pushing through fear and performing under that environment is like no sport I can I can think of. And we missed out on that five-year period of learning gradually and building up the kind of tolerance to fear and having the ability to override that fear, and we just jumped in the deep end. And I can safely say I have never been so anxious or scared or just dreading just the training process in itself. We used to plan trips up to the Peak District, be like, right, we're going to go two days trad climbing, and it would get rained off. And it'd be like, get in. Mm -hmm. Genuinely. And I used to be over the moon that we weren't going climbing because I hated it. <laughs> and I think people, someone said this to me the other day, they are like, Oh, look, they were talking about the LCAT thing. They're like, you've got, you've got the dream job. 
I was like, what, what do you mean by that? And they're like, you you know, you get to travel the world and do these adventures and like, you know, you get to go climbing like for a year. And it's like, yeah, but climbing shit, like when you don't know what you're doing. If it's a passion of yours, amazing. And like, it must be, I'm so envious of people who go climbing and love it. But we never got the opportunity to build up that kind of passion for it. We were thrown in and every time we climbed, we had to scare ourselves. And I mean, building up into the month in Alcat, we'd wake up every morning and for the first 10 seconds, you're like, oh, amazing. Like we're in this incredible place. And then it's like, oh, we've got to go mm. climb that 800 foot multi-pitch today. Um, and you can't think, put your finger on the fear because it's not that dangerous unless you do something seriously wrong. But because we're so new to it, there is every chance we'll do something seriously wrong. Um, and it was the whole process was just mentally so so draining um throughout the training into l cap and then obviously the ascent itself so like everyone looks at the row and they go wow 54 days at sea like if you can do that you can do anything totally different you've got a, a bubble of protection in the row if you make a mistake you don't die whereas on this climb we were tying a knot into a system if you tie the wrong knot your mate falls 3,000 feet um so in terms of taxing physically and mentally it's been it's been pretty big for sure. Yeah, I bet it's fucking ridiculous. But I love to hear the thought process. And, you know, I was going to ask this later, but I'd be keen to hear about it now around the mindset stuff because it's so fascinating on the level that you've changed from just coming up with the idea of the row and the stuff you've done in between. Obviously, in the last episode, you spoke all about those challenges. But how has your inner voice changed from starting the road day one, if you compare yourself to now? Good question. Because that's only really been two years, but the stuff you've put, is it two years or three years now? Three, three years three now, yeah. I, I think it, it stems from, and an our big part of our mission is to encourage people to remove the word can't. And it's it being a, a toxic word that puts a stop to everything at the very beginning, whether it's in your day-to-day -day job or it's something that you're planning on doing in the future. Saying can't is the easiest way to, you know, I can't do that, I've never done it that way before, or we can't do that, it will never get signed off, whatever it is. Um, and these are, I guess, ways that, and when we tell people our, our plans for things to do it, the first thing we get is, you know, you can't do that. You've never climbed before. You've never rode before. And these they're all just bigger and bigger, like manifestations of, of that thinking and trying to show what is what we can do if we remove that can't. And sometimes it felt like with LCAP that we'd, maybe bitten off more than we can chew, just driving in every day and seeing the wall and just being like, you know, why are we putting ourselves through this constant fear the whole time? But then now, looking back, having done it, it's like it all just stemmed from constant reinforcement to ourselves, being like, actually, I think we probably can do it. We can do it. It's not going to be pretty or whatever, but that constant reiterations that we can do it, uh, has eventually led to us doing it, even if it was in incredibly uncomfortable, like a dangerously steep learning curve. We're kind of sat here only 18 months later, kind of having done it. And I think that's where the motivation for us keep, keeps coming from. And that's why we always do stuff that we've never done before. Because we, a lot of people ask us, you know, you go and row across the Pacific or the Indian Ocean or what are you going to climb next? And I actually think with climbing, we probably will carry on just like you said because there's not this huge thing looming over our head now we can actually enjoy it and climb for the right reasons um 
rowing is, is maybe a bit different, but <laughs> it's <laughs> just not again. fun. <laughs> but um, but doing something totally new is is us showing and sharing that journey of getting to a place where we can eventually do something pretty cool. And yeah. actually, the, the climb is something that we've probably had more interaction and messages from people than the row or anything else that we've done because it's so like easy for people to understand that we're sat on the edge of a cliff mm. or we're dangling off a rope at this height or whatever. And it's the ultimate fear, isn't it? Yeah, Heights. well, I think it seems so, yeah, based on... I don't, I don't know about you, I think we got way more messages than I ever thought we would. Yeah, no, I think, I think we achieved what we wanted to in during the climb where we we managed to upload quite a lot to our social just on stories. And our goal from this was this wasn't going to be about climbing. It was about putting two novices into an environment where when people watch Free Solo or the Dormwall, it's unbelievable, but you're watching the best climbers in the world like poetically dance up this rock. And they almost take the the fear and the danger out of it because they're so precise and so professional. So we were like when people are leaving that cinema, surely some of them are thinking, what would I be like up there? And that's kind of what we wanted to answer. And when you look at our Instagram stories, we're sat on this ledge, like can barely speak, sunburnt, like hands bleeding. <laughs> it's like, that's the reality of it. And I think when we look back at when we did the row to now, I think what's become addictive isn't necessarily the the, the 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 kind of the thrill seeking stuff because we're not but we're not I don't think we're thrill seekers I wouldn't say we are like we're quite adverse to fear we don't like being scared but it's the when we finish El Cap like the stories you gain from it and in in thirty years time this is how I kind of break it down as to like the why is you know when you're chatting to your grandkids or whatever you can go All right. I, <laughs> Climb that, <laughs> rode that. It's like, what have you, what have that. you done? <laughs> <laughs> what have you done, you little bastard? <laughs> Get off! Sorry, me. doing it all for the pop story. <laughs> yeah. Get out of Granddad's but. mansion. <laughs> <laughs> but the reality is, you have done it. Yeah, and, I know. And exactly. No one can take it away from exactly. you. Exactly, so. and that's the beauty of it: is you're just building these chapters that you can look back yeah. on and. The pain is temporary, but like the memories are just going to be there forever. And it, yeah, I'm sure they'll get embellished over the years. <laughs> Hellcat's suddenly 8,000 yeah, feet. It's grown again. <laughs> Jesus, it's enormous. It's uh, 54 days. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 54 days on the wall. Um, but that, that's, that's why you do it. And I think from the row, we learned that and we absorbed that. And that's what we're trying to replicate. It's just those stories that hopefully will inspire other people as well. Oh, 100%, mate. And it inspires me. I've got to give you guys credit for, you know, you pushed me to do more stuff as well and I think that the philosophy of removing the word can't is so powerful and I think a lot of people turn to can't because it's the easy way out and it's it's a, it's an excuse not to push yourself and grow and become better and achieve the great things that you've done and so many other people have done and I think one of the things that take flight has opened my eyes to is the fact that every single person I sit across the table from whether they're a Super Bowl winner or a entrepreneur who's worth millions they're just another human being who has decided for some reason that they are allowed to achieve that thing or that they can do it and that's exactly what you boys are doing so it's brilliant so it seems really like a really simple thing to do is remove can't but like i would challenge everyone listening to this to try and do it for a day or something it, it, it's way more difficult than it sounds but the the doors that it opens are, are well worth mm. going through like the awkward times or the tough or the scary times or whatever it is yeah no i think it's a brilliant shout so one of the things i really wanted to talk to you about and you spoke a little bit about how people can relate to the challenge that you've just done because it's fucking ridiculous, <laughs> is talking about nervousness and 
anxiety or performance anxiety, everyone looks at LCAP and thinks it's insane and probably immediately looks at the, how daunting the challenge is and how big it is and what you've got to try and do in 18 months or longer to be able to do that. And it's it's something that climbers work years towards climbing themselves. So the only way I can really relate to performance anxiety is through the sports that I played. So football was my sport and times that I felt nervous were like before a big game. And it's just such a weird thing because you desperately want to do the thing that you're about to do. So playing a cup final or something, for example, you really want to do it, but there's that little thought in the back of your mind that's like, kind of hope it gets rained off. Or yeah. if I get injured, then I don't actually have to put myself through that. So I imagine with the month that you were in the van and practicing on the wall and on LCAP itself, you went through that time and time and time again. Are there any examples of like heights of anxiety or examples of ways that you dealt with it that allowed you to be better the day after when you were going through the same emotion or experience? I think um, before every big trad climb we do in the valley, whether it's a multi-pitch or just a single route, you'd at the bottom of it, we'd both be feeling genuinely quite like sick with nerves. And you're looking at it and you're and you're trying to, you kind of learn to maybe take those. <laughs> there was times when we were just looking at each other like, yeah. please just say, let's sack it off yeah, and we'll just go to the bar or something. That's like, the thing. If that's you say it, I'm down for it. And then neither of us are like, oh, we're going to have to do this. But what was we? it that made you do it? I think it's, we kind of learned to understand that the nerves were there for a reason, but a ner- a, nerves are just a different type of excitement, aren't they, really? It's just an excitement that you're maybe not looking forward to. And I'll give you an example. So... There were numerous occasions where we're climbing a route and we were on top of a, the last pitch of a, a big multi-pitch. Um, so we're about 800 feet up uh, and I took the last pitch and uh, it was kind of this crack, like kind of vertical crack, got halfway up, it placed a bit of gear, fine. So I should be safe now. Like it's a good bit of gear. It's in the wall. Climbed a bit further and I was probably only 10 feet above this piece of gear. So it's a 20 foot fall. So it's relatively big. The top is another 10 feet away. And I was there trying to place a bit of gear. Wrong place. The only reason I'm trying to place it is because I'm getting scared that I've got a 20-foot fall. So I'm there, and I'm like, put my hand in the crack. Okay, got a good hold. Foot's in the crack. One bit of gear goes in. There's about three foot either side of this bit of gear. Like, it's like nothing. Hot Nothing's dog down going, the hallway. Yeah, hot dog down the hallway. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say that, and then stayed away from it. I'm glad you brought that up. It was very much yeah. like it. Though. Yeah. And what do you mean by that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Never had it. Um, <laughs> oh, God. Um, and then, like, that goes back on the harness. Another bit of gear. doesn't fit. And, and all this time, obviously, my, my arm is getting knackered. So then the shakes come. He's blowing me on belay, thinking, oh, God, he's off it. <laughs> it's about to whip. And so I try three bits of gear. Then suddenly I'm like, right what are you doing like get move on and basically just put the gear back on and just climb the rest of it so just climb like topped out and would have been a big fall but way safer than sitting around trying to place protection where you couldn't and it's that kind of self-talk that i think these are fantastic climbers have just got dialed is they know the risk versus reward and they know that if they stop there and try and do something it's actually more dangerous than carrying on running it out a bit more mm-hmm. And we got much better at that, but that fear often just overwhelmed us. And we just do stupid things. You, you just don't climb as you should do. You, you place too much gear or you take a risk or you stop in a bad position and then you end up falling and whatever. I guess it just comes with experience. hundred percent. Totally. It yeah. comes from not, not trusting the ability. And a lot of people climb routes over and over again. Every single thing that we did was the first thing we'd ever done. So on site, it's called, we just go turn up at the bottom of it and climb it all. 
So you don't actually know, you know, the, the next three moves after that could have been really hard and that could have been where you had to protect that move. But we, you would never know that. Hmm. So everything we were totally fresh. If we did it again, which loads of people do, you just go run straight up that corner because you know what's up there now and you know what it's like. But the not knowing is the reason that you stand there shaking, trying to place gear because, you know, you might go to reach over what looks like a good hold and there'd just be nothing there and you just peel off or something. So it's uh, it's weird and that definitely comes from time and, and trusting ability as well. But when, yeah, you're used to following a colour-coded plastic system in an indoor climbing yeah. pool, doing that where you, the corners are blind and you're running stuff out, it feels so so surreal. But when the, the not knowing is... If you know what's around the corner, then you don't get that spike of excitement or endorphin rush or whatever it might be. Like, that's the whole reason that we're doing what we're doing, right? Yeah, definitely, definitely. And I think with with nerves for me personally, I the time before the climb was always the most nervous and in the van beforehand or even even the evening before knowing that we were going to do a run to Sickle or like a big climb the next day. Um was when I was like the most anxious, lying in bed, just like, oh God, oh God. And then when you're actually in it, there is so much to do and so much to be focused on, whether it's roping or lowering out or the bag or the climbing, the placing gear, that your mind is totally occupied during that time. So being fully engaged in the moment, essentially in like the, in the flow of it, it was fine. Only when you stopped, which also can come from a, a brief stop to place gear, then your mind starts to get going again. Like that doesn't fit. Oh mm. god, this one doesn't fit. Oh shit, I'm ten feet above the gear. Whatever. Um, but the actual process of climbing and being fully involved in the moment, there there isn't much fear. So that is like a good way of dealing with it. Is is just doing it. Oh, massive. I think that's why people use exercise as their escapism or therapy, form of therapy. Like you. So I started playing five aside again. Okay, <laughs> got the uh, got the Nike Mercurials back out. Oh, do you know what? I haven't got one anymore. Oh what? No, I've gone for uh, F50s. Okay, yeah. looking for a sponsor. So. <laughs> <laughs> scored uh, scored ten in two before I came to Yosemite, then injured myself. So shit, that's yeah. a good record though. Um, yeah. but like exercise. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah I'm fully aware. <laughs> I'm a sniper. What, what of it? <laughs> So back to the, what we're here for. <laughs> uh, so I think that it's it has its ups and downs. It has the benefit of being the distraction and it gives you the cocktail of endorphins that we want, like dopamine and serotonin and all these things. But a lot of the stuff we talk about in this podcast as well is diving a little bit deeper and having a little bit more awareness of what those emotions are. I don't suppose you did that when you were off the wall to try and have like dissect a little bit more about what you were going through and think about how that fear was impacting you, maybe why you were... I mean, there's obviously why you were scared is because you're hanging off a rock. But like, what was behind some of those fears? I, th I think uh, this, this might be wrong, but in the most basic sense, that is why we went to the valley for a month beforehand was to fully get embedded in that. And then even our downtime, we were surround. We were in the place where all this was normal mm. and it was natural. So it, not as consciously as I'll sit and have half an hour like decompressing and meditating and going through the what ifs and all that stuff but just by being as simple as it sounds just in the environment the whole time where the people that you meet at the cafe or at the coffee shop are all climbers and you're all having the same conversations um 
Probably too much, actually. It got very boring, didn't it? The climbing chart. God, they love a chart, don't they? About <laughs> climbing. It's just like, whoa. <laughs> Come on, lads. Let's talk about anything. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about Brexit, shall we? <laughs> but it was... Um, but that was, I think that was a way of us being kind of decompressing from it while still being engaged in it and it just becoming far more natural, which in the end, I think our thought was that that would make it easier. Mm. I think like one of the, it's good to do that, but not overanalyze. There's like analysis paralysis when you're doing too much of that stuff and yeah. then that affects your performance actually. So it would have impacted you on the wall. Yeah. There's other stuff which I'm almost certain you boys definitely do. And I was reading uh, the Peter Crouch, How to Be a Footballer 2, oh, yeah. which I recommend. Is it good? It's actually is, if, especially if like if you've either played football or you're a football fan, yeah. or actually to be honest, like a sports fan in general, because it's just light-hearted and it gets away from the yeah. intense self-help and non-fiction books that I read a lot of. <laughs> like <laughs> so, crying too. Yeah, <laughs> you've got no fans. <laughs> I'm not good enough. <laughs> I'm the same. So right. it's just yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Bring him back. Get him on the pod. What's his name? Mental. One of the things that I. I mean, it's hilarious, the book anyway, but one of the things that I loved is that he talks quite openly about how he used humour to manage a lot of his pre-match nerves. And I know you boys, yeah. is one of the reasons why you, you work so well together is that you get on very well and you have a similar sense of humour. So I imagine that's one of your kind of outlets. It definitely is. Um, and even on the wall, like I, th I think what was actually quite insightful about LCAP, firstly, the, the interesting thing was the least nervous in that entire month, the least point of nerves was walking to the bottom of LCAP. Hmm which doesn't really make much sense. But I think we'd, we knew we had our date. We knew when we were going, we like examined the route beyond belief. We knew our roles. We knew what we were doing on this pitch, on that pitch. And I think you put it quite well when we started. It was the first time that we'd made progress up a wall that we weren't coming back down from. So everything we ticked off, it was like, mm. right, 30 pitches, 29 pitches. Yeah. And for us, it was like, we're right, we're going to spend two nights on the wall. First night, huge milestone. Second day is going to be tough, but then that third morning, it's like, it's the run to the top. So I think when you, when we were walking towards that wall, we were so prepared for what we needed to do. It was different to just turning up to one of the crags and being like, right, let's try and climb this. I suppose there's also an element of pressure because before you're actually, when you're leading up to it, three weeks before, two yeah. weeks before, you're thinking, fuck, we've got to cram in this in, we've got to learn all this, we've got to get ready you're on day on you're on the day of the climb there's nothing more you can do so yeah it's just like, it's, it's you're just there going. and we were saying the week before it was like i'd do it tomorrow if we could because mm. it had just become this cloud following yeah. us and it was like i just want to do it how just do we i've got a good example of when we were laughing through oh, fine. the, the yeah, crazy yeah, yeah. times so uh one of the things we had to do was like obviously you're climbing up this route it doesn't go straight up it moves left and right a lot the nose the route that we did moves left and right a lot and you've got to pull a bag that weighs about 50 kilos up up the route with you as well called the pig called the pig because it is a bastard it's a pig it's an absolute pig and um one of the things you have to do is lower it out so that it moves under the next anchor so then it can go straight up obviously so it's not swinging around um and on one point Tom was riding the pig, so on the <laughs> on the rope that is that the bag is so attached graceful. to, and uh, and it was my job to lower him out. So basically around this massive corner, so he was just going to be hanging on this sheer face that nothing else is on, about a thousand feet up. Um, so on there's a all, duffel bag on a <laughs> on a giant duffel bag, and there's all this technique to like to do it to feed the rope through. And we were just chatting, just like laughing about how mental the whole thing is as I was paying the rope through. And he still had about 40 feet to go. 
on this swing and the rope just went <laughs> straight through my hands and I just watched him and the look on his face <laughs> as he just disappeared around the corner. It's like, you motherfucker! <laughs> and I could see him absolutely dying with laughter afterwards. It's like, oh God, thank God he's all right there. But you well, that's a classic you... case of just laughing through it. Well, you just trust the gear in that situation? You just... Uh, you have to, Yeah, right? yeah. Th- th- that's... Do you know what? When we signed up for this climbing challenge, <laughs> there is... The climbing is hardly any of it. It is like an engineering feat getting up this wall. It's physics, it's, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's physics. It's roping, it's systems, it's pulleys, it's lowering bags out, it's pendulums, it's all this kind of stuff. Um, and that was just, yeah, I mean, being on a duffel bag <laughs> a thousand feet up, literally <laughs> hugging it like like a ninja warrior where they, they grab those things. <laughs> And then Wish was like, okay, mate, learn your out. And he's like, zoop. And he was just his face, he was like, no, oh, bugger. And I was just like, whoa. <laughs> just gone. It was like, no. And then you're like, you're obviously gripped and so scared. My hands are sweating yeah. just talking about it. So am I. <laughs> mate, honestly, I, we thought that was a myth until we got out there. I, my hands have been so sweaty for a month. The last thing you need when climbing yeah. is greasy hands. But it's, yeah, we, we always revert back to humor. It's kind of our, our safe ground. Um, and there were points where we were serious on the wall. But always, like, if someone's doing a good job, there'll be a pat on the shoulder, and it's like, mate, good work, good work. And having that reinforcement of someone else is is key, because you're both in the same boat. You both don't really know what's going on. But at the same time, you're laughing, but you're tying a knot that he's going to then climb on. And if you make a mistake, it's not you's going to die, it's it's your mate. And so there was this fine line between... Right, let's let's try and enjoy this and have a good time, and we also need to be as accurate as you can possibly be. Mm. Um, so it, it was a serious roller coaster, but I think that's what made it so kind of special and unique was yeah. that balance between them. Yeah, it's so good. It's, it's so fascinating. You're talking about the riding the pig as well. Oh, mate. It's like it's something that you don't even think about, do you? Like, no, it never, never even crossed my it. mind. I, when I was down in the valley, you told me James to speak to anyone who had a. Telescope, yeah, <laughs> or binoculars, yeah. Uh, there was only one there, so really? yeah, uh, but I had a hundred percent close rate on that one. Nice. So um, it was a hundred bucks, just top pocket. It's <laughs> like so, here you go, sir. It's like tell Ram the accountant. <laughs> um, and I went over to this couple and they let me have a look through, and they found you within about thirty seconds. Really? Yeah. Pretty, pretty obvious. Two fat lads. <laughs> <laughs> but I watched for I'd say about two minutes. And it, it was the entire time was you were putting this bag up. Oh, yeah, that was camp six. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so you're relatively close to the top at this point. You probably had about six hours to go, uh, yeah. roughly. And, um, yeah, it was just weird, just like watching how long and how much graft it looked like yeah. getting that as well. It's the, um, it's the first time, I think. So we climbed for 72 hours from top to bottom. Um, so the whole thing took 72 hours, roughly. And we climbed for, I think, 61 of those. So, which we weren't expecting that how long the days were going to be, um, purely because we ran into difficulties with the pig, it would get stuck. And the level of faff in climbing or big walling is like nothing I've ever seen. And it would get stuck on a flake and then you try and release it, wouldn't work. You'd have to rappel down, release it, get back up there, which takes an hour. Then you start going again, it gets stuck again. And it is just constantly, there's something always stopping you and always testing you. And then night falls. And we probably spent 30% of the whole climb in the dark, which was a double-edged sword because the exposure goes because you can't even see your feet. You can just see the little beam of light on your head torch. So everything is very focused. 
the fact that you're 3,000 feet up disappears and you could just be on on a step like two feet off the ground for all you know. But at the same time, it was weird, wasn't it? Because time just kind of dissolved at night. Yeah. It would be 10 p.m. and it'd be like, right, okay, probably got two hours to camp. Remember, I asked you for the time. You're like, mate, it's 3 a.m. And it's like, what? So it flew by. Uh, like, oh, you just get absorbed because my point was that there isn't a single moment from the time we left the floor, apart from when we slept, where you weren't doing something. Mm. There were no rest points. We missed lunch on both days. You, There are no periods of rest where you can kind of be like, right, okay, oh, that was tough. It's just like, bang, this is now my role. I'm either leading, I'm cleaning, or I'm doing the bag. Yeah. I'm hauling the bag, I'm fixing this, I'm doing that. I'm cleaning the gear off the anchor, I'm building an anchor. There is every single second of every day there was something to do and it just kind of warps time. So if I, if I ask both of you now to think back to a moment when you're on the wall, where are each of you? I'm on the edge of the cliff at like 5am on the morning, 5am in the morning. What, the emergency stuff? Yeah, after this. So this is, we've done day one, got to El Cap Tower, nice big ledge. And then day two was a, a massive day, big push. And that's when, what you were talking about where... Tom asked for the time. And you were like, oh, it's got to be close to midnight now. And I was like, you don't want to know the time. It's like, what is it? It's like, it's 3 a.m. It's like, how? How has that happened? And then another two hours after that, we were at the bottom of, of the pitch that we en- eventually ended up sleeping on. And it took us two hours to get up, find a place to sit. But also context, it gets dark at your semi at 6 p.m. 6 p.m. Oh, 6 6 oh yeah. So in the dark for... Yeah, 10 hours at oh. least. Um, and... But yeah, it just warps, so it doesn't feel like doesn't feel like ten hours. But it's a reason why you're shaking and you're freezing cold. And is that flow state or is that just focus? I th- focus. I think it's focus. I don't know. It, I guess they're they're quite closely linked. Yeah. But it's it definitely went quicker in the night than in day. I guess you've got that reference of where the sun is in the yeah. sky. I suppose the the flow state is the balance between challenge and skill set. So I guess on the easier ones, you're probably getting into that flow state and then on perhaps on the more difficult climbs. You we were... got into like a rhythm which probably felt more like that. Um, so yeah, I've, yeah. In, in my mind, I'm on that ledge and I've just woken up after like 45 minutes sleep. And like you were saying, there's no exposure at night. So when we finally got in the sleeping bags, sat bolt upright, hanging off the cliff, like legs dangling off the cliff, it's dark and we're walking around confidently and... Uh, cooking food and all this sort of stuff and then 45 an hour later when we wake up to the sun it's like oh wow like this is how high we are mm. and, and that is the, like the imprint that I have from LCAP which is quite interesting cause nothing to do with climbing or anything like that yeah. it's just being in that place yeah that image is insane as well that you guys have got someone's mm. taking the photo of you yeah. oh yeah yeah, yeah yeah crazy what, what about you Tom it was after you'd done the king swing uh, so it's day, middle of day two it was just getting dark and I was waiting at on a ledge below with the bag. And you guys climbed up. Um, I had an hour, about an hour and a half wait on this ledge on my own before lowering out and then coming up the line. And that was the, that was the first time I'd stopped. And being on your own is when you kind of really... Laugh <laughs> 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 at your own jokes. The head game really gets tested. And I remember I FaceTimed my girlfriend, who was with some friends, started talking like hey how's it going <laughs> oh yeah you probably worried it yeah she was like are you all right and I, I didn't really notice it but i was like cool i'm actually i was a little bit like she could tell something was wrong 
I think the sun was going down. I put my head torch on, couldn't see these guys, couldn't hear them. And I was just literally 2,000 feet up on my own, staring at this knot, being like, right, <laughs> what have I got to do here again? Like, okay, I've got to do that. And then that's got to go out there. And I was oh, like, yeah, it was complex as yeah, well. Yeah, and it was like, <laughs> I can't let the rope go because I'll hit that flake and die. Um, cool, that's okay. And you just sit there and everything builds up. And it's when you stop that you suddenly become really scared. And the exposure hit me. And it was cold. The wind was brutal. And she was like, are you okay? And I was like, uh, got to go. Got to go. Like, oh, I've got to do something now. She's like, okay. I was like, I'm fine. Sat there and I was like, poor, actually, this is this is seriously tough. Um, and that's when you kind of revert back to, I was like, listen, you're lucky to do this. Mm. Um, like, you chose to be here. You just try and put a smile on your face, which weirdly helps and just have like a joke about it be like look at what you're doing this is mental how long did it take you to flip it to that a couple of minutes oh really yeah it's, 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 it wasn't like drastic I wasn't there like having a breakdown but I was very much let things kind of build up and it was like right okay you need to sort yourself out here. you've got a job to do and then you just revert back to what you know mm. but there were points on it where you the enormity of it kind of builds and builds and then you have a section where you're not thinking about anything and then you're like holy shit this is mad. Yeah. I think it's so good to talk about that because it's very easy for people to look at the images and how brilliant the accomplishment looks, but to get really behind yeah. actually how you felt in some of those moments is awesome. I think, I don't know about you, I, I thought about like the people, like you guys in the valley watching up, which gives you a bit of strength. Mm. Um, and you think about, you know, people who are going to be proud of you for doing it. And, and, and that just kind of gives you like, right, come on. Yeah. get on with it now like you've chosen to be here like, yeah. stop sobbing on a ledge <laughs> yeah. I had a moment where I was about to do the, the king swing do you want to explain um, what the king swing is which is insane by so the, way. the king swing is like a 150 foot big pendulum swing that's 1500 foot off the ground so Tom had tied a knot at the top that I'm at the other end on and I have to swing like we were saying earlier the route goes left to right quite a lot and unless you are one of the best top 10 climbers in the world, you're not making that move to get left, basically. So you take a big pendulum swing, you're essentially sprinting and jumping across the rock to find the next crack system. <laughs> I was at the top like, thank fuck, I'm not doing that. Did, did you know that it was part of it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's quite yeah. a famous kind of like moment of the climb. Okay, so it wasn't a shock. No. No, no. But it, it's, it's one of those that, it obviously, it fully relies on the knot because you're not only you just loading this rope, you're like yanking it and it's traveling like massively. So not that I've had nothing to do with and I've played no part in. So you, you have to totally surrender control to like someone else first for the knot. And then I think the classic thing with climbing and the classic thing that we struggle with the whole time in the training is you trying to control absolutely everything. It all relies on like your fingertips and your feet and your stance. And when you're on the rope, it doesn't rely on that at all. You have to totally surrender to like this really simple piece of equipment, like this little metal thing called a grigri or these ascenders. And you can't do anything about it. If that if it fails, then you're fucked basically. So it was it was the combination of resonates with me a lot because it just had to totally surrender to stuff that I couldn't control both the knot first and then the grigri second and 
you know, they're they're both absolutely bomber, but the knot is so simple. And if you do it wrong, it's a self belaying knot, so it actually is designed to unravel. If, <laughs> if you just put the loop the wrong side, it totally unravels. Yeah. Really? Yeah. yeah, mate. The knot to hold you is you do one reverse of a loop, and that's the knot to let you go. Yeah. It's, uh, and and to give you a good example <laughs> of the pressure we were under, so the first uh, pitch I led. Um, was the scariest moment of my life, hands down. Really? I was shitting my pants. <laughs> it was like this, this, the wind was going, it was like this huge windstorm came in and it was like, right, Tom, you're up. And it was just like, oh my <laughs> God. And it was this, this 120 foot crack, same bit of gear the whole way up. So you can only place three bits of gear in 120 feet. So you're running it out big time. I was absolutely shitting it. And I was there at the bottom, like Whittle and Eric's there. <laughs> oh, yeah. And they're like, right, come on, boy, like tie in. It's like, okay, cool. So when you climb, you tie into the end of your rope into your harness and you do a figure of eight knot. It's the first knot you learn when you learn to climb. You must have done it yeah. a thousand yeah. times. It's like putting a seatbelt on in a car. Uh, you could do it with your eyes closed. It took me 11 attempts to do a figure <laughs> of eight knot. I couldn't do it. Couldn't do it. What, handshaking? No, no just kept getting it wrong. It was I like going through and then the knot again. I couldn't do it. And it was just like, <laughs> these lads are next to me like, holy shit, it's going to die. <laughs> and I was like, we were laughing about it, but in my head, I was like, I can't tie a figure eight knot. It's literally <laughs> like doing your shoelaces up for a climber. It's like you could do it a million times without making a mistake. And I could not tie this figure eight knot. I just, couldn't, I just couldn't remember how to do it. Just I was so nervous. Right. Just like I was overridden by fear. And I couldn't do this simple task that was basically there to attach me to this rope <laughs> and it was just like and, and when you think about that and then you're tying knots for other people yeah it's just like shit I remember I was like Tommy is, is it done right you're it's like, like think yeah. so it's like are you sure like check again it's like yeah it's like it's so simple it's like yeah it's done it's like okay but I think for like for everyone listening 100% go to At The Tempest 2 and watch that King Swing video yeah, yeah, it's yeah, fucking yeah. ridiculous it's a hell watching, of a video watching you run across the wall at 1500 feet yeah something like that yeah just above El wow, Cap Tower wow you see how small the trees are below it's insane yeah it's mega I've, I've just remembered something that I'll share now quickly it's a, a kind of not another example of that but all in the lead up to climbing El Cap saying that you trust everything on a gree-gree so you, you back stuff up or and, and on ascenders so an ascender is just something that slides up the rope so you can move up it one way and it grips the other way so you can just ascend the rope uh, and what you do is they can fail so you, you tie a backup knot under the bottom ascender and clip it to your harness basically you're tying in short so that then if the ascenders fail you don't just fall off the rope completely um <laughs> Tommy was tying backup knots in the rope and not clipping it to his harness. I have no idea. So, so he just <laughs> fell straight past the knot. <laughs> and he was like, literally the day before we were going up El Cap, he's like, wait, am I supposed to clip the backup knot to my harness? It's like, yeah. It's like, I've never done that. <laughs> so, oh like, my I'm God. I'm the worst climber. I've got my like retention of information is worryingly poor. <laughs> so I'd be like, like, 4 p.m. on a Tuesday. It's like, right, okay, we're going through this, lowering out this knot. It's like, got it. Cool. Wednesday morning, it's just like, what did we do yesterday? <laughs> I, I, I cannot, I cannot kind of like hold any information for longer than 24 hours, but I think which that's... is not cool when you're climbing. <laughs> it definitely, I think it comes with nerves and it just, it was like overload sometimes. Yeah. That's it. People, I, f I forget a lot of the time, people go, on the sound check, we'd have breakfast. I was like, oh shit, yeah. like four hours ago, I can't remember. <laughs>
but yeah just to talk to some of the stuff you spoke about there I think like the fear thing's really interesting and it's a million miles away from the level that you guys probably felt on the wall but the event that I did the day you guys left the whole day build up to that I was just like why have I organised this what am I doing like I've picked the date I've picked the speakers I've picked the panellists I've sold the tickets what have I put myself in this stupid situation where I've got to stand up and deliver something that I'm really passionate that I care about which makes it even more fearful totally and there was a split second and I was just like just cancel it (laughs) just cancel it but then like you said like going back to the reasons why you're doing it going back to I want to like whatever the reasons are right impacting people or inspiring people to do the thing that they're passionate about or whatever it might be is the way that you kind of combat some of that fear just a a quick reminder and I think the surrender thing is huge and that's something I've been doing a lot Um, it gets talked a lot about in like meditation practices and I think a lot of the retreats like hone in on that one of the ones I went on earlier this year like the whole three days was based around surrender like that was literally like the theme of it and I use it now anytime it's like a really stressful day or there's there's a big thing coming up like just surrender like everything is as it's supposed to be just like let go yeah. Letting go wouldn't have been good for you boys. No, <laughs> no, but no, yeah, you're, you're totally right. Um, we've done events as well, and that is very nerve wracking stuff. Like, yeah, it's when you curate it all yourself, sell the tickets, yeah. and basically you can't help think it's like, oh, what if it's shit? Yeah, yeah, exactly. What if no one turns up? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. It's, it's, I think it's completely natural, and uh, yeah, I don't think that ever goes away. It's just one of those things. Yes, and it? I think the good thing with that, like, um, we've listened to the the one when you had Aldo on. Yeah. is um, putting things in, into perspective. And we mm. do it when we do events as well. It's like, you know, it's not the end of the world if no one turns up yeah. or if it's crap. And on that, the climb, it's like, you know, these this rope can hold 10 times my body weight uh, and more. But you, there's that 1% going, but what if this is the time? You know, mm. ropes have sheared in the past, like the senders have failed in the past. You know, what what if this happens? But you just have to, yeah. It's, just, it's just that irrational side of your brain, totally. isn't it? And everyone's got it. And it's always there, but it's just almost being aware of it and being like, yeah, of course that's going to happen now. Let's get on with it. And people say about climbing, it's like, you know, that must be so dangerous. But the equipment we're using is designed to not let you fall. Mm. Whereas you get in a car, a car is designed to get you to A to B. It will protect you in somewhat, but that's not designed to protect you as its like utmost importance. Whereas yeah. the stuff we're using is literally designed to keep you safe yeah. and when you understand that and it comes back to the thing when people ask us like oh how did you leave your jobs it's, it's what is the worst case scenario now obviously the worst case scenario if a rope goes you die fine but the worst case scenario for falling 10 feet is you're going to fall 10 feet and you're going to be fine you might be shaken up a bit but that is the worst thing that's going to happen so it's kind of identifying that and being like that's not that bad like get on with it yeah um i think that is quite a good way to look at fear is what is the worst case scenario? Mm. Which at your event is maybe half the people turn up, the microphone doesn't work. That's that's basically going to be the worst mm. case scenario, isn't it? People are there to support you, not yeah. to judge you. And actually, I suppose one of the things that happened was straight away I got there like, sorry, we've only got one mic. I was like, I'm doing a panel talk with four <laughs> panelists, <laughs> but you just adapt. Don't yeah, you? exactly. And we ended up yeah. passing it around. And exactly. It was fine. Yeah. Um, you spoke a lot about trust there, and the, the trust you put in one another was unbelievable. Tying ropes for one another at, at big moments on the climb. Also something that is huge, which ties into trust is community. And people talk about you're the average of the five people you surround yourself with, but people that you're around who have a certain belief system or philosophy can allow you to then elevate yours to that level as well. It was unbelievable seeing the the guys that you spoke with and spent time with while you were 
out at Yosemite and particularly when you were at El Cap. So I'll let you guys talk to who those were and, and, and tell the story of that experience and kind of how it empowered you to do the climb. I'll actually start with probably the most important person in the whole project before we get on to the Hollywood names. Okay. <laughs> and that's a dude uh, called Eric. So Eric was, we put in touch with him about a year ago. He lives in Yosemite. He's not like a guide or anything. He's just kind of a, he's just a good climber. Absolutely loves it. It's what he lives to do. He manages a couple of Airbnbs, but just climbs. And we got put in touch with him to kind of learn more about El Cap. Um, and he kind of almost became a bit of a mentor for us. We, we'd speak to him on Skype and he'd be like, right, you need to get this, you need to get that. This is the plan. He'd give us some training advice. Um, and our plan was originally that Eric was going to, we were going to climb, climb in a team of four. So we'd have JP, who was going to do all the video stuff. Eric was going to be kind of with him, sorting everything out, the roping, the rigging. And then we'd be a unit of two, like just behind them. So basically a party of four um, moving up the rock. And then when we went out to Yosemite for the month, our plan was to basically have four, I think it was 14 full days with Eric booked in. Uh, and in those 14 days, it was like purposeful practice. We weren't going to learn how to become amazing rock climbers. He was going to literally teach us pitch by pitch how to get up El Cap, what to do with the bag, what to do with the rope, here, this way, left, right, here, whatever. And due to unforeseen circumstances, Eric's girlfriend unfortunately got quite ill. He basically had to be in Sacramento for the whole month. So it's like, boys, you've you've kind of got to, um, you're going to have to prepare on your own. Which, when we arrived, was pretty, pretty daunting news. Because preparing on your own for something like that is, we were watching YouTube videos in Starbucks on how to lower out, on how to repel off this, how to do this, and then going and doing it. Which isn't really how you should kind of learn in that environment. But that's kind of all we had to go off. Uh, and then about a week out from our climb, we had quite a big conversation. We were like, right, how are we feeling about this? We haven't really had any tuition up until this point. We haven't been up on, on LCAT, which we're planning on doing. We haven't done any of the route yet. Uh, and we sat down with Eric and we were like, listen, we, we kind of respect that you've had to be away and we, that's unavoidable. But do we feel in a position where as a two we can climb up this safely and get ourselves to the top without an incident? Possibly not. So we essentially changed it that Eric would be in a party with us and not with JP, be with JP for parts of it helping him. But we'd have his kind of eyes to essentially stop us making mistakes that could, in essence, kill us. And I think when we sat down, it was, we kind of felt a bit like, oh shit, but, you know, is, is it should we be doing this? Should we just postpone it till next year or what's the deal? And it's like, no. And then Eric kind of put it quite black and white. He was like, I will climb as a party with you, but you need to be fully aware. I'm not guiding you. I'm not responsible for you. You'll be alone for a, well, the majority of it because we'll have our roles. You need to take the share of the climbing and the hauling and all this. And he's like, but I will make sure that I will avoid anything going wrong under my control, essentially. Uh, and he was, I can safely say, there's an 85% dropout rate on LCAP. So 85% of people who attempt it bail after the first day. And as we were going up on the first day, we saw three or four parties coming down. And we're like, oh, what's going on? They're like, nah, fuck this. And these were climbers, like some guys from Chamonix, some guys from like Utah. And they're like, nah, 
can't do it. Like it's, it's just, it's so big, it's so scary, it's so unnatural that even proper climbers bail. And Eric was our support system. He was like, nah, boys, we got this. Whenever we got scared, he was the kind of guy who was like, nah, it's cool. I know exactly what we need to do. Just do this, just do this, just do this. And he was an enormous factor in our success. I think that goes around to just accepting that by surrounding yourself with the right people, experts, but people also with the right mentality, that kind of gives you the key to success. Mm. And uh, he was uh, yeah, a pivotal kind of person in this whole adventure. Well, totally. I think like the, when I was driving up four and a half, five hours or whatever from LA, I was just had a lot of time to think about the enormity of what you were doing. And as the moment I arrived, the first morning I arrived for sunrise to watch the, the dorm wall and just seeing other climbers there and how, I know you said a lot drop out, but how relaxed everybody was going to the bottom where you start and seeing people actually on the wall immediately like got rid of so much of my anxiety mm. around it because it just suddenly immediately felt normal and, and everyone does it, it's fine. Yeah. I think Eric had fully justified or it fully justified the decision we made when on day one we got to Sickle Ledge, which is the first um, major ledge there. And for some reason unknown to me even now, I just totally unclipped from any support or like safety when I got up there. And I think it's because when you've been vertical for ages and waiting your harness, you obviously are never going to untie. But when you get on a like a level area like a ledge you can unclip and it feels not natural because you're walking around a little bit uh, and i'd totally unclip from the system so if i'd taken a slip or the ledge is only sort of two and a half foot wide if i'd have gone off the that was it i was i was gone and he just said within five seconds like just stop what you're doing like are you aware that you're totally out of the system right now and you're not safe i was like shit <laughs> No, I didn't know that. And uh, and the next thing that you do is when you're going to the, pull the bag up or flake the ropes, so one of the main things that you do is you, you'll then like lean back and weight the system so that you've got an area to sort stuff out and it's kind of a bit more comfortable than trying to balance on the rocks. So, you know, potentially the next thing I could have done would, would be lean back and not be connected into the system. And Eric, that has kind of justified immediately while we'd made that decision and it was not through not knowing it was just through autopilot probably being a bit tired i don't know but just being totally out of the system for a short period of time is is all it takes and that's all the all the horror stories that you hear from climbing is just one tiny little error that someone's made because it's all just really simple easy things there's just hundreds of them so you can see why someone will make a simple mistake you know repelling off the wrong side of the rope or unclipping from the system yeah. at some point or thinking they're in i think it's funny like fatigue is such a big one and as soon as totally. i notice either when i react badly to situations or when i underperform or whatever it might be it's always linked back to fatigue i'm either overdoing it that's why i was interested to see how often you're like checking in with yourself when you're off the wall yeah but um Fascinating. I know Eric was like huge in, in what you achieved. So massive shout out to him. But do you want to speak to some of the other people that you surrounded yourself with? Yeah, totally. And, and part of the reason we went to the Valley again for, for the month was to be surrounded by those people. Like you said, the positive impact that you get from being surrounded by climbers who this day to day for them is, is normality. And living in a van where we would sleep in a place called El Portal, which would be surrounded by 30, 40 other camper vans everyone's climbing 
everyone's got their own intentions. 90% of the people aren't thinking about LCAP at all. You know, there's thousands of climbs in Yosemite Valley. It really is like the mecca. So we thought we'd benefit from being surrounded by those people massively in the first place. And then we were lucky enough to to get to spend a decent chunk of time with the, I guess, the, the, the man of the of the time now and the master of mindset in Alex Honold. So I'm sure a lot of people have seen Free Solo. Um, yeah, we were lucky enough to, in total, maybe spend like a good couple of days with him over a few two-hour periods and, um, yeah, kind of run some questions by him and just chat in general. And it was, a, I guess, a concentration of that mindset of it becoming normal um, and the effect that he had on us was was pretty awesome. We weren't sure what to expect when we first met him because obviously Free Solo shows him as a, well, he is, he's a, he's, an, he's a character, isn't he? He's a special guy and he doesn't feel fear like most, but actually he was a, a real genuine bloke who was sound, gave us a load of advice, some climbing advice that went in one ear and straight out the other. But uh, other than that, absolute legend. And we, yeah, got on... Uh, got him in the van, had a good chat with him there. And then on night one, we rocked up to El Cap Tower, about six hours behind schedule, <laughs> as expected. <laughs> Amazing thing. We, for some reason, we thought we were going to be on El Cap Tower for the early afternoon. <laughs> we planned lunch there. Yeah. We got there at half two in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> so we it's were a hell of a late lunch. <laughs> it's like, Alex, we're a bit behind schedule. Well, literally, so the last pitch up to that ledge, we were coming up the ropes and our ropes got... Uh, Tangled. twisted in yeah, there yeah. so we were there for like 10 minutes basically trying to figure out how not to take a 60 foot whipper so we are there like right I'm going to go under the rope but you can't let go of that because then we're both going to go swinging and there's a wall there so we are there for like 20 minutes trying to figure this out shouting in the darkness and you just hear this like hey is that those cheeky Brits and it's fucking honoured up on this ledge and we're like I'll piss off Alex <laughs> <laughs> give us a hand mate <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah then we, sp- we spent our party, Alex Honnold, Tommy Caldwell, uh, and that photographer Austin was there. Um, and just seeing them operate, it's like it's just their it's their natural habitat. You said it was like artistic watching. Them. Oh, they are! It is honestly unbelievable, <laughs> like how they move, how they justify risk. But it's not risk for them because they know they can do it. And when we were climbing day two, their route, which was a new route up Elcat, did a big loop through the nose. So when I was on that ledge I was speaking about earlier, I was there for like over an hour. Honold climbed past me. He was like, yo, what's up? Rappelled back down. was like, yo, what's up? And then came back and he was like, are you still here? <laughs> <laughs> he was like, what are you doing? And I was there. And I, this is when I was in my head. I was like, Alex, Alex, quickly. I was like, so I'm going to put this bite of rope through here, then lower out on that. Yeah? He's like, uh, think so, bro. And it's like, shit. Is that what he said? I yeah. could hear him having this conversation with I'm him. I'm asking him advice. He's like 30 <laughs> yards away trying to climb. And I'm like doubting myself so much. <laughs> it's like the most famous climber in the world. I was like, right, Alex, just stop what you're doing. I need to do a lower out here. So I'm just going to talk you through the process. And he's like, think so. He's just, just be safe. And it's like, Oh, what a stupid it's like, going, it's like going to Ronaldo and going, I'm just going to shoot over yeah. there. Like, yeah. 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 I'm just going to put this it? top bend if that's all right. <laughs> yeah, surreal though. Like, Didn't you, you slept on the same ledge on the first yeah, night? Yeah, yeah. And I think, they, I think he actually enjoyed being around us because he's this icon in the sport. And I hope no climber takes offence to this, but climbers, are full, when they're in it, they are full nauses. It's all they talk about. They're obsessed. Like, it's it an obsession. Like constantly, it's like, oh yeah, what about that pitch? Oh, the beater is you put your right foot there. It's like, oh shit, I put my right foot there. It's constant. 
And so when anyone sees him in a valley, everyone's oh my God, Alex, like free solo is amazing. Like, mm. blah, 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 and they just hassle him. Whereas we like, we obviously care about climbing, but we don't really give a shit about climbing that much. So we're just chatting to him like he's a normal bloke yeah. because that's, that's all he is to us yeah. really. I think he, that's all he is. Yeah, that's anyway. all he is. And that's, and, it, and I think he loved that. Yeah. And he just wanted to talk about the row and blah, blah, blah. And like what we ate and where we went for a shit and all the usual questions. <laughs> but he was fascinated by that. Um, and he's like, I could never do that. He's like, but you guys, are, you'll get a pearl cap easy if you can spend 54 days in the boat. It's like, oh, why does everyone make that? I think until we assumption? got to that ledge and then he realized just how <laughs> we truly didn't know like any of that stuff. Well, they were all pissing themselves at my hands. So we got up onto the thing and I'd, I'd absolutely murdered my hands on the first day just by climbing like an idiot. <laughs> and they were like... Quite climbing petrified. Yeah. So I had blood like streaming down my arm. They but I like, was following following the pitch <laughs> after Tommy did the climb. It was like following a blood trail. Every every Mate. foot, there's this stain of blood. It, like not even... You'll see it every now and then, like a little speck of blood here. Blood. There. there was like trickles... <laughs> In the crack, it's like, oh, God, what is that going to be like? We got up there, he's just like, oh, my God, his hands are in pieces. And we're like, bro, what is wrong with your hands? It's like, I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> that climber life, yeah? Oh, yeah. like, no. <laughs> it's like I'm middle class. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, these are used to a MacBook, maybe. <laughs> There's an iPad waiting for me. Content creators. Yeah. <laughs> but, like, for me, like, you've climbed with the two best climbers in the world. Yeah, and it's pretty lucky. I think that's, that's worth its weight in gold, right? Yeah. Was that the, the highlight? The absolute goats. Yeah, the highlight was... You, you, were, you were talking coffee with Tommy Cool. Yeah, they, well. were, they were absolute coffee nerds. Um, we strategised over how to shit on the ledge. Yeah, and we all, went for a shit with them, didn't we? Went yeah. for a shit with them. Yeah. Yeah. It's super. Going, so then, then what do we do? And, oh, you wrap down there, you get the bag out and stuff. And it was... Well, that was a surreal experience anyway. But yeah, according to them, you got to embrace it. So we did. Shat and, in the bag. Um, and yeah, we, we left them to it. They finished the same day as we did. Um, sure, they put up one of the uh, hardest first ascents ever. It's a similar group of climbers, really. <laughs> we're yeah. all on our own journey. So, so they congratulations, doing, guys. They were doing the first climb of its type on the wall, right? A first new, free ascent up a climb called A New Dawn. Okay. Yeah, which nice. looked fairly hard. <laughs> it's uh, it's absolutely sad. It's an aid route, which is another way that people get up the, rule, uh, up the wall, which is absolutely mental, is they aid climb, so they take copperheads and pins and pieces of metal and they hammer it into parts of the wall stand on there and basically make progress using gear and metal and wires and stuff um, so that shows how hard the climb is yeah. and they decided to try and climb it free uh, and yeah they've been scoping it out for a while now and the day before we made our ascent up started up El Cap they actually invited us to go up their fixed lines so we went up behind them on the ropes and just watched them climb and work the lower pitches of that route. And if you just stood at the bottom of it like we did, there's no obvious way to go. There's no handholds, footholds, and they're just moving just the total opposite of like we are. You know, we feel like under tension, stressed, our breathing and stuff. They are casual chatting. Their feet are smeared on like absolute nothing. And, uh, and yeah, they're cruising it. So it was... Yeah, obviously an amazing experience just to be involved in that. Yeah, I bet, man. It's just the difference between the elite and, and the rest of us who are just trying to do this thing. I'm, I'm thinking about I'm doing the London Marathon next year and like I, I did it in 2015 as well and just thinking about people who were dusting me when I was halfway through and they're like on the final stretch and they look so casual. Yeah. yeah. But I guess it's just 
what happens when you're amateur trying to achieve something special for yourself. Yeah. Totally. So there's a couple more questions I want to ask you guys before I jump into the final three that we always do. Something that's worth mentioning, I had a big section around comfort zone and how we operate in a comfort zone and how fatigue is is a massive factor in that when you're constantly in the comfort zone and you guys were in that for a month of your training. But what I think is is worthwhile suggesting and directing people to is the conversation you had with Alex yeah. uh, on your podcast, the Tempest 2 podcast. I uh, listened to that and there's a good 20 minutes talking about comfort zone, which I found hugely, hugely fascinating and, and it powerful for me anyway, listening to it and it really resonated. So people who want to listen to that, definitely do it. And Alex came across brilliantly. Yeah. But the couple of things I wanted to kind of highlight before we move on to the final three is talking about trust. There's this analogy that I heard the other day where and I can actually even talk to to your experience, James, of this. When you know someone who snores, yes, I do. <laughs> yes, I fucking you do. Can, you can, yes, you can Sam, to the right of me. <laughs> so when when somebody snores, they don't know that they do it. Right? They wake up in the morning, you go, "Fuck me, you were snoring those last night," and they they have to trust it, or they go, "No, I don't believe it." But they have to trust in your opinion. Mm. A lot of the time, when people are operating in a duo you can see things in other people that perhaps they can't see in themselves. So how do you guys work together with stuff like that? Trusting each other in the in in the, the not tying capabilities of each other, the skills of each other, and just generally, how do you do that with, with one another? Firstly, I'd like to address the fact that I do not <laughs> snore. <laughs> um, but you, you put, I see you purposely lying on your back when you go to sleep, because that's when you snore is when you're on your back. We're like a married couple. <laughs> and I'm like, you bastard. What, so <laughs> like, was, it, was it bad in the van? I didn't snore. <laughs> you snored in the van, a hundred percent. Remarkable. But yeah, remarkable. Scenes. I didn't snore. I didn't snore because I didn't sleep at all. <laughs> so I was worried sick. <laughs> and when you woke yourself up, so you're like, Whoo! yeah, that did happen. And you're like, what was that? I was like, so you snoring, you bastard. <laughs> and then it's like, whistle. Never going off topic. Whistle falls asleep really quickly. So it's like when we get into bed, I'm under this pressure to get to sleep as fast oh, as possible. Yeah. But he's like, it's just like, bang, he's gone. It's like, how is he doing that? <laughs> Absolutely gone. Very um, good. But yeah, now, now that's addressed. <laughs> yeah. um, I think, I don't know, I think the trust thing comes from probably at this point, like years of doing things together and also being, it comes from the honesty. So if we're doing something that like has high consequence or is high risk or whatever, we will always ask triple check, quadruple check or whatever, rather than be like, we know people um, that are the exact opposite of us and they will pretend like they know exactly what they're doing and jeopardize their own safety and other people's safety around them rather than it come across like they haven't understood or that they don't know exactly what they're doing. Whereas we're the exact opposite. We really want to understand something and we both know that we're both like that if that makes sense so when we are eventually doing these knots and doing these high consequence things can fully trust that we do actually understand it because we've been through that process together of right this is it now this is what i get it makes sense double checking it with each other um, and that probably goes across other things in the day-to-day, -day, the start work that we do with Dose, the Tempest 2 things, and in the climbing when actually it truly like matters. It's just when you're always got that communication and honesty like running throughout, whether it's good or bad, you can kind of take it as fact that that's going to be the case as you're, as it like does matter. It's sense. good to hear because as much as it's fun and you talk about tying ropes wrong or unclipping and all this stuff, they were learning 
there, there were times where you were learning what you were doing, what was right and what was wrong. And you are actually triple checking, quadruple check it, checking yeah. and, and backing yourself. But like, this is actually going to touch a little bit on the comfort zone stuff, but is, was there habits or routines that you started to put into your day to at least make you feel comfortable to a certain degree as you were learning? Like doing those checks and stuff or, or not really? I think um, kind of the stuff we did, did at home, obviously we live in and around London, so we're not in the, the best environment to learn how to big wall. So we joked about it earlier. We relied heavily on, on YouTube, which is a tool that many people may be like, well, maybe that's, you know, who's to say the, the person on YouTube is right or whatever. But just doing knots at home and things like that and building anchors on your staircase, which seems stupid, but just kind of keeps it relevant in your mind. So when you're, you are on the wall, you kind of know what to do. I think... You certainly fully, fully immersed yourself in climbing. Like you knew ev the name of every route on El Cap. You knew the name of everything here, everything there. Like you properly, properly got into it. <laughs> yeah. Um, whereas I didn't because, I don't know, I, I do like climbing, but I'm not passionate about climbing. And I didn't want to get so into it that I resented it. Um, but to be honest, we knew fully that the 90% of the learning was going to be in that month. And that's why we spent the month out there. But there was stuff we could do in the training and just practicing knots and watching a video on that or watching a video on a certain route that we knew we were going to do that kind of helps to build a bit of knowledge. But um, I mean, it's good though. Like you compliment one another. You've got two very different approaches there. I think yeah. I could probably speak to yours, James, because our dad spoke about climbing a lot when we were yeah. kids and almost romanticized this idea of climbing, like big rock climbing and free climbing and all this sort of stuff. Um, perhaps you didn't get that exposure and you're doing it more for the challenge and the growth for yourself rather than yeah. the actual sport itself. Yeah, for sure. For sure. All right, awesome, guys. So I think the last thing I want to talk to you about here is get a little bit of an understanding on A, how you felt when you reached the top. Uh, I know that there was a lot of relief. I saw you guys at what is it, about midnight or something and you, you came down after you'd repelled. So hear a little bit about emotionally what that was like to finish and then here we are a week later back in London, back in, I suppose, normality, how that feeling has changed. Because we spoke last time about when you finish challenges and how you can either have like a shit, what do I do now moment? Or are you still kind of relishing in the achievement or what's kind of going through your mind at the minute? Um, it's actually been quite a weird one. So when we finished, <clears throat> it's actually quite anticlimactic. So we'd had this this kind of image in our head for 18 months of, you know, like you, you top out on El Cap and then you got the view and amazing sunset and it's like a beer at the top and a high five. But the reality was we missed that light window. So we topped out in Again. pitch black. Yeah, shock. Pitched out and uh, topped out in pitch black, which is slightly annoying because now that there's no real footage of us coming over the edge or anything like that. But that's fine. Like you, you can't plan for those things. But got to the top and it was just like right cool right let's plan the way down and it was like oh shit okay and like everyone was like we were rushing around and we were putting the ropes together and JP was sorting his video stuff out and we were taking the gear off and I kind of grabbed whistle to one side and I was like mate like well done like we've, we've done it and it was like a, a brief moment but there was no like like when we finished a row it was this big moment like straight into the yacht club straight into a meal Straight into a bottle of champagne. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it wasn't like that because we knew we had quite a dangerous descent down. So it kind of diluted it and you still had to be pretty, pretty on it. And then all we'd been dreaming about 
for that month, which we were saying, we was like, God, I'd do anything to be in my little new build. <laughs> Sat there just in front of a laptop. Like, we cr- <laughs> we craved this, the Comfort. normality. Craved yeah, yeah, yeah. it. And then yesterday, I was sat at home in, in my office, and it was like, fucking hell, I'm bored. <laughs> I've got to get out of here. Yeah, literally. It's just like, Jesus Christ, man, just never content. But it's been a weird, like, week. It, it, it's... I don't know. It hasn't. I don't think it's quite dawned on me, anyway, personally. What what we've done. It still feels because there's so much conversation about it still, and our gear is still out there. And we need to get that back. So it's not like it's. I don't know. For me, there isn't like a full stop yet. Oh, okay. It's yeah. not. You haven't got like the, the Olympic gold medal winning syndrome where they, no. they achieved their whole life dream and then don't know what to do next. Uh, but I'm seriously looking forward. I'm I'm thinking about the next thing now, and I'm really looking forward to finding that next thing and then bang, we're back into a routine of pushing towards something else. Mm. Yeah. I think that's what I miss more than whatever the adventure is or whatever it is. It's that acquisition of like a new skill or the process of learning something and knowing that there's something, whether it's a year or two years or three months, whatever it is, is that that then goes. And even though it was a cloud hanging over us for 18 months or whatever, and then amplified over the month when we were there, it's kind of gone now, which I feel really relieved about. But then, yeah, it's kind of like, what now? And it is the question everyone asks as soon as you get down, you know, what what next? What are you doing next? Do you, I haven't asked you that. Do you enjoy the process as much as the feeling of the achievement, like reaching the peak? Because it's the perfect metaphor as well, right? Climbing th- a mountain. Th- yeah, I think this is uh, the first one where I was, I actually enjoyed the the whole climb and it's, it's easier to do so because it's only three days or whatever and not three weeks in patagonia or 54 days or whatever on the boat um and but it was really easy even as we were sat there on the edge of the cliff and it was five o'clock in the morning see the stars as so i was like this is exactly why we do it like I th- and i think by putting the emphasis on that time on the climb instead of just i can't wait to finish or get me up there and then it being the feeling of like relief and elation at the top is it's changed how I feel now, like a week later. And I still feel like, same really, still digesting what we've done. And I'll see a, a picture or one of our pictures, I've not, not thought about it for a while, and be like, oh, shit, we did actually climb that. That's it's like a quite proud, I think, but maybe more so than the other things that we've done. Just because it's, probably because it's so obvious, the start and the finish. Yeah. It, you can just see it there and it's like, Oh, that's pretty cool. And maybe it helped that it was so anticlimactic at the end because yeah, maybe. you don't get that emotional peak of like, mm. oh my God, we've just done this like you did at the row. But you kind of have this like gradual realisation of what you've achieved over time, yeah. which makes it easier to... I also think what makes it easier is we're not just adventurers that just like, like you're saying, we're not thrill seekers. We're not just seeking the next thrill or physical exploit or whatever. We have like a business to run, get back here. And we were the, spent the whole month in Yosemite, like excited about what we can do with the business when we get back and planning what the future looks like for that. So it's, it's we're still focused and driven, but in a kind of a different way rather than just this terrifying like physical feat. It's something that like drives in a different way, which is quite a nice, really nice balance to have actually. Yeah, that's a good point actually. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't want to just do this adventure stuff and nothing else. I think uh, some people do that and they're constantly traveling and doing this stuff all the time, which is epic. But I think one of our big passions is 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 business and, yeah. and, and running a business and taking these learnings that we get from these big things, but then implementing that into a workplace and seeing the results from that. 
So it does give you a good balance rather than just being all about, right, Christ, what's the next thing? What's the next thing? Because I think, as I alluded to earlier, people are like, you've got the dream job. I was reading a book the other day where they had a stat about when people turn their passion into a profession, there's a a huge kind of uh, basically drop off of enjoying it. So if a guitarist who loves playing guitar takes the plunge and becomes a session guitarist, suddenly their passion is now their job. And when it's your job, it's an obligation and, and you have to do it. And suddenly you, you end up resenting it. And I think if you, you take something you're passionate about it and you make it all of what you're doing, you kind of dilute it and you get a little bit kind of like, oh God, I've actually got to get up and do that, get up and do that. Whereas we've got a nice balance of, like we, we love coming into the city for meetings. Like we actually enjoy that stuff. But then we have the the output of going and do these amazing things yeah. as well. So we're, we're pretty lucky to have both things. Yeah. Amazing point to bring up. I think it, that hits home with me particularly the podcast is at a stage where I've put it off for a long time but can start talking to sponsorship and having ads on the podcast and it's such a difficult thing to think about because it's like does that take away from the authenticity or does that change the way that I approach it the people that I get on the stories that we want to tell and it does change it when it's a passion project yeah. to move into a business and I think it's it's such an important thing to have multiple things to focus on because when your motivation dips in one you can like rely on the other one to give yeah. you that little lift and just shift your focus slightly. So I think that's such a huge thing to talk about. And I don't think many people are maybe confident or comfortable in themselves to bring it up. So I think that's a really good shout boys. I'll, I could talk to you all day, but I'm conscious of, of your time and the listeners time. So, Never heard of the Atlantic. <laughs> <laughs> so, of course, you guys are aware we do the same three questions at the end of every episode. You're actually the first people to return. So that's, nice. a, that's a nice little there thing as well. First people to come back on. Were we, we the first episode? Second. First, uh, second, okay. Yeah, yeah. First doesn't really count then, is it? <laughs> is that Hugh Thomas? Warm up, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Warm up. <laughs> Get him on as a warm up. <laughs> no, no one listens to that one. <laughs> uh, so... The first question is, is there anything you've come across or discovered that you're particularly excited about? And Tom, you answered this one in the first time you guys were on. And you spoke about a guy called Peter McKinnon, uh, who was a YouTube videographer, who I think yeah. at the time oh, was yeah. pretty relevant for you guys. You were, you were learning a lot from him around videography and how you do editing and all that sort of stuff. So however you guys want to answer this, same question with a, with a different answer. Okay. Um, that is an interesting one, Pete McKinnon, actually. He's a, yeah vlogger still still uses his no well i think we at that point we were going down that route of creating content on a regular basis for the tempest 2 whether it was a youtube channel or something and actually that's not i guess what we've ended up doing so yeah it's quite interesting that that was a thing at the time Hmm. but it definitely was um so recently what have i come across what is a big thing could be anything a book uh, a gym exercise a anything anything at all a tv series I think what I'm excited about most is obviously we've had this massive thing that we've just done that has felt like a cloud looming over us. And I think we touched on it earlier, but what I'm excited about is doing something for the reason of enjoyment or something rather than feeling like because I have to. Classic thing that we always talk about uh, is food and we ate horrendously in the US one because we were living out of a van two because there's nothing in Yosemite Valley so I've 
been hugely looking forward to and enjoying just getting back to cooking. We're both like quite into cooking and like creating dinners and stuff. And I'm lucky in the sense that my girlfriend, fiance now, doesn't uh, <laughs> doesn't doesn't cook <laughs> doesn't cook at all. So she cleans, mental setup, and, and I right. cook. So I just get the Such opportunity. A stereotypical household living in the fucking seventies. <laughs> so I just get the opportunity to cook and create on a regular basis, and I love it. Sometimes it is beans on toast. I hope the camera got that Brentism there. <laughs> Ordinary people cooking <laughs> extraordinary yeah, meals. Cooking ordinary meals. <laughs> yeah. Putting chicken dippers in the oven. What's your favourite? Uh, to be fair, I've had... The thing you cooked when we were in Greece in the summer was unreal. Oh, carbonara. Yeah, that, that was carbonara, oh, yeah. I mean, Mark, what was the last thing you cooked? <laughs> That's a great question. <laughs> Tommy couldn't believe this when I told him. Are you an ambassador of delivery? I wish, mate. I'm a, I'm a shareholder at this point. You, you've be. made them a unicorn, I think. It is a, it is a terrible <laughs> habit, which I need to break immediately, but I do get a delivery... Far too often. Convenience is king for you, isn't it? It is, but I think you know. I'm not. This is a massive excuse, but I live in the city. I've got a one bed flat with a small kitchen, and uh, I work a lot. So. I'm, I'm with you. I'm, I'm with you. I'm. Uh, yeah, I'm with you. I'm on the other side. I like. I like to cook. So uh, favorite dish. Favorite dish before I went was carbonara. Just, it was really um, good. Can you share that recipe with us? Yeah, absolutely. I'll put it in the notes. Just that you know your raw egg wash going in there and just. Oh, that's fantastic. Might nice. do later. Okay, no, that's a good that's a good answer. We've not had that one before. So, <laughs> Car- what are you excited about? Carbonara. <laughs> Mental. But again, the, <laughs> the, ins- the insights to an adventurer. <laughs> raw egg cake. Yeah, pretty <laughs> much. All right, the second of these is if you had to give a practice or routine for every listener to incorporate into their day that's going to help them drive their performance, so make them better versions of themselves. What would that be? And the last time, James, you answered this and you said meditation, which had been something that you'd practiced for a long time and had introduced to me. Uh, and I'd been doing it probably for about three or four years at that point as well. So, Tom, if you'd like to answer this one. Simple, uh, just exercise. Seems super, super simple and cliche, but I think um, the the power of, like, I went to the gym this morning for 20 minutes um, before a meeting and it just makes you may not necessarily have done a huge amount physiologically, but it just sets you up, I think. Mm. Um, and I think we've been going on for a while, the whole sweat every day thing, whether it's a five minute hit or it's 10 pull-ups or it's, you know, a full gym session, I think. Run into the tube. Yeah. Run into the tube. <laughs> but just like exercise. And we noticed it in, when we were in the States, we were obviously exercising, climbing, but we weren't moving and um, that well, we were kind of, pent up in the van and you, you do crave it and you mm. notice it if you, you go without it so yeah. what's your favorite do you know what? i'm going to start i'm going to quit the kind of the weights in the gym and stuff like that i'm too old and get injured far too easily for that now i think i'm going to start at 30 for yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> honestly mate you know i've got like chocolate neck chocolate yeah, back true. uh so i think i'm going to start doing more like classes and stuff maybe some zumba whatever whatever uh, but yeah, I think exercise is so key. Yeah, it's amazing, man. I think whether it's proactive or reactive, yeah. like sometimes if I'm proper stressing during a, like a busy day, I'll come home and just like blast stuff, even if it's three or four K, 15 minutes and you're dripping with sweat and you feel like a new yeah. person afterwards. Yeah, totally agree. So the last of these three is, I'll do the shortened version again because of time, but essentially what is the key trait within you that allowed you to complete the El Capitan climb? Uh, I'll tell you what you said last time, Tom. You said self-belief. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you could think of another one, that'd be great. And James, something we spoke about today, actually, as well, you, you spoke about removing the word can't and having that philosophy. So I think 
um, for this occasion, one of our key traits is the was the ability, essentially grit, but the ability to just keep going when it gets tough. You mentioned earlier that 85% of people bail on LCAP for that exact reason. It gets really tough and quite quickly. And a lot of climbing is, like we were saying, single pitch, four pitches is like a big climb. And you're staring at 31. Uh, so you have to understand that it's going to be horrendous at times. And, well, for us, it took climbing until 2.30 in the morning one day and 5 o'clock in the morning the next day, sleeping very little, not eating enough. So it was just the sheer grit and determination to be able to just keep digging down and performing these skills of the roping and the climbing stuff when at like rock bottom in terms of energy. And I think it would be really easy to, yeah, I could totally, totally understand why so many people bail on it. Totally. Um, because it's all that fatigue compounded with this massive exposure and having that grit, what I think was an attribute that I actually thought about at the time as like, this is something that I feel that like we've got in, in buckets and it was like needed. Amazing. Yeah. 72 hours. I think grit's a good yeah. quality to have. Uh, I actually think, uh, kind of emotional intelligence of the people around you, um, knowing when maybe someone's struggling and understanding the impact that a, like, you know, a fist bump gives or just a word of encouragement or it's actually interesting on the, that night we pushed all five, Eric did a big stint of climbing to try and get us to this camp and we didn't get there. And he was gone, like genuine exhaustion, was becoming hypothermic, hit a wall, couldn't speak. And this guy who we were looking up to for support suddenly became um, kind of dead weight and we had to look after him. We had to give him a coat. We had to try and kind of make make kind of a lighthearted stuff about it, but like, come on, mate, we can get there, etc. cetera. Uh, and there was a complete role reversal in one of the most crucial parts of the climb. And having that awareness that you're putting other people first, I think in big adventures is probably the most important trait you can have. Because if you act as a lone wolf in a team, you, you won't make it. You, you'll, you'll, you're doing it for the wrong reasons and you won't perform to your highest kind of peak performance. You'll perform at 20% rather than at 100 um, so I think we've got very good awareness of the people around us and looking after the other person before maybe considering yourself. And I think that's kind of what helps us get through those shit times. Amazing. Yeah, they say like it takes a village for anything that's like a big, big challenge like that. Yeah. So essentially emotional intelligence when uh, making sure that you know if someone's going to drop you around the corner. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so boys, just to, just to wrap up, I want to say it's been amazing watching you both grow over the last nearly three years now and seeing the shift in both mindsets and even just how casually you sit here talking about what you've just accomplished and it's been it's been a real pleasure to be so close to it and thanks for sharing the story it's, it's been awesome chatting cheers thanks mate. for having us mate ciao ciao Look forward to it there it is guys i hope you enjoyed that what an unbelievable achievement 3000 meter climb el capitan yosemite valley in california 72 hours of climbing sleeping on a rock face but what an incredible experience that those boys will be able to live with for the rest of their lives you can't take that achievement away from them now i really hope i did that one justice it meant a lot for me to get that one right and represent their amazing achievement as best as i could and ask the right questions 
I actually felt nervous doing that one for the first time because I really cared about it and I wanted to make sure that I got it right. And not that I don't care about the other ones, but just because I, I respect and appreciate what the boys did so much. I made a point actually of not asking what's next because I know they get asked that all the time. But after we finished, they posted something about how they come up with the next challenge and it made me wish that I did ask them. Essentially, the answer is that they go into the pub, they craft the ideas for their next adventure, they come up with something that's incredible and scary and commit to it, and then they tell as many people as possible, which I think is such a great idea, such a good message, and an easy way for all of us to come up with an idea of achieving something amazing. And, and then you've heard everything in this podcast about how they actually went ahead and, and followed through and, and worked towards it. Thank you again, James and Tom, for sharing everything. I look forward to having you on again after your next challenge, whatever it is. While I was in LA, I actually recorded five other episodes, which are all coming soon. A massive variety, some amazing conversations in some insane locations as well. You'll hear all of those coming very, very soon. But before next week, we have an epic conversation, an amazing athlete, performer and human being sharing their story. He's the double Paralympic champion and world record holder, Richard Whitehead. Richard is actually performing this week in the World Championships in Dubai. So please wish him luck. He's racing on a Thursday if you want to watch that. I think it's around two o'clock UK time. But please stay tuned for that episode. I can't wait to release that one. I went up to Loughborough University and actually trained with him before, which was so much fun. And before we leave it there, a massive thank you to One Fine Play for having us in the studio. An amazing setup, fantastic equipment, and it means you can actually watch this episode on YouTube as well. So you can go to Take Flight TV, which I'm hearing is quite difficult to find at the minute because it's a new channel. So I'll leave the link in my bio on Instagram, which is at markwittle underscore tf. Click through to the bio, you can subscribe to the channel there, you can watch the full interview of me talking to The Tempest 2, which if you've listened to it now, might not be the best sales pitch, but if you wanted to watch that and see us laughing at each other and uh, having a good time talking about their story, then, then please do that. Go and follow the guys as well, at The Tempest 2 on all socials. And until next time, stay positive, stay motivated and take flight.